Blog Talk Radio. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to the Michael Cutler Hour. I am your host, Michael Cutler. It is Friday evening. It is April the 16th, 2021, and I'm happy to join you. Glad you're joining me. And boy, oh boy, the beat goes on. And um, I'm just sitting here trying to make sense of what is now the new normal. Uh, I'm in the past, well, since the election, Certainly the Biden administration is uh, kind of like Star Trek, taking um, Americans places we've never been and probably don't want to be. At least I sure don't. And and I want to be clear about it because the media for decades has become a propaganda machine. It it started slowly, but now it's it's the the, uh, Ministry of Truth right out of George Orwell. It started with Jimmy Carter and this nonsense about calling any foreign national in the country an immigrant, not using the word alien. Now Biden says, well, we're going to call them non-citizens. Well, that's true. Aliens are non-citizens. It's actually better than the term immigrant because the term immigrant has certain implications. You know, if you want to keep any immigrants out, then you're anti-immigrant. And America was built by immigrants. We're the land of immigrants. So somehow that, by extension, makes you anti-American. Believe it or not, this garbage has has gone mainstream. Pardon me. Bernie Madoff passed away earlier this week, the con man who built how many people out of how much wealth, how many hundreds of millions. God only knows what the true numbers are. But the federal government, the news organizations, the Democrats, and the Republicans, have really been pulling a con job on Americans for far too many years. Our immigration laws are not about race or religion or ethnicity. And what's remarkable, if you watch the evolution of the way that the immigration laws have gone, yes, we did have Chinese exclusion laws, we did do other things that were wrong, but that ended a long time ago. But the open borders characters, the uh, anti-law enforcement folks will say, well, Originally, the way we enforce the laws, and they'll go into this whole big speech about sections of law that have been taken off the books decades, many decades ago. They're gone. What's the problem? The law is done. We've, we've changed the law. The law couldn't be fairer. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> That's what happens when I have dinner just before I go on the air, and I apologize to all of you. Kermit the Frog has set up shop here. So so the point is that our laws have nothing to do with race or religion or ethnicity. It's about keeping out aliens who pose a threat to public safety, public health, national security, and the jobs and wages of Americans, irrespective of race, religion, or ethnicity. But people have been conned. Oh, you want to enforce the laws, you hate immigrants. No, actually, I don't. I, I don't hate immigrants. <clears throat> and the same laws that tell us who to keep out and who to kick out based on those threats that I mentioned also tell us who to admit. We admit more lawful immigrants than the rest of the world combined. I don't know what the numbers are for this past year because of COVID, but the year before, well over a million aliens were granted green cards, lawful immigrant status placed immediately on the pathway to U.S. citizenship. That does not include the tens of millions of temporary visitors who come on all sorts of visas for various purposes, tourists, foreign students, foreign workers, journalists, and so forth. We have a wide-open country. But the idea that we would even dare suggest that we want to keep out criminals or terrorists or child molesters or, or spies, oh, my God, You don't want to have immigrants come to America? What's wrong with you? Governor Cuomo, that genius, said that the immigrants need to be protected from ICE agents, from immigration agents. No, the immigration agents actually protect the immigrants. And now 
there's a, a, an individual that the president wants to have head up um, immigration enforcement, a sheriff from, I believe, Arizona, who said, oh, we can't have the police working with immigration. We will, you know, yes, forgive the term, alienate the immigrant community. Look, the bottom line is that it's the immigrant community that's at greatest risk when we don't take care to keep criminals out. Criminal aliens live within the same ethnic immigrant community that most closely resembles who they are, not just from Latin America, from Asia, from Europe, from Africa, from the Caribbean. I know. I spent 30 years enforcing the laws, 26 years as an agent, arresting people from all over the world. I got an award from the government of Japan. I worked closely with the Israeli National Police. I worked with the Royal, the British um, Customs and the uh, New Scotland Yard and um, the Royal Canadian Mounties and, and other agencies from all over the world. <clears throat> human nature is human nature. <clears throat> and every race, every religion, every ethnicity has the good, the bad, and the ugly. And it only makes sense to not want people to come into the country if they're going to pose a threat to your well-being. And all we hear from the media is what the immigrants would like or what corporations would like or what the churches would like. When are we going to hear a journalist talk about what Americans expect from their own government? Abraham Lincoln spoke about a government that was of the people, by the people, for the people. How are you of, by, and for the people when you are importing an army of foreign workers, when you're permitting gang members to come across the border, when you permit drugs to be smuggled into the United States? spent nearly half of my 30-year career with the INS assigned to first DEA intelligence for four and a half years, and then I was promoted to senior special agent and spent more than a decade with the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force. I worked very closely with the DEA for 15 years. In fact, they tried to recruit me. Uh, family circumstances didn't permit for a while. I was a single parent, so I could not accept their, their offer. I, and, you know, I, I had misgivings about not being able to take the offer, but being a father to me is my most important job, will always be my most important job. Being a good parent is always number one. <clears throat> I don't care how good you do your job, if you fail as a parent, then uh, what's the point? What's the point? But the thing is I worked very closely with DEA, and one of the people that I worked closest with was Bob Stutman. Bob was the special agent in charge of the New York Field Division of the Drug Enforcement Administration in New York. And I remember being with him when he gave a speech one day, and he talked about how when he first started working for DEA in the early 80s, I believe it was, he said, you know, if somebody dropped a kilo of cocaine on a street corner, people would be clamoring for the, the sanitation department to sweep it up and the fire department to hose off what was left. And then he said, we had the crack epidemic of, of the early to mid-80s. And he said, now, and he was giving this speech around 1990, as I remember, <clears throat> he said, now, if someone dropped a brick of, of, of cocaine on a street corner anywhere in America, you'd probably need to have the riot police come out because half the town would be out there with straws shoved into their nose, and they'd be trying to snort it all up. Drugs have permeated our country. And what are we doing about it? Nothing. The war on drugs, really? Last year, a record number of people died of opiate overdoses. A lot of those overdoses were for illegal drugs, and we had people, of course, that were using and, and misusing and abusing prescription drugs. <clears throat> but we are a country that is hooked on drugs. And if you turn the television on, it seems as though every other commercial is a commercial about some pill or some medicine or some treatment that could cure you of a pain or a symptom or a problem. And the other commercials are the law firms that are offering to help you sue the companies that sold you the drugs that made you sick or killed a family member. Drugs, drugs, drugs. Drugs are pouring into this country left, right, and center. They're not just coming across the Mexican border. They're coming in through Canada. They're coming in through the seaports, they're coming in at international airports in record quantities. The drug money is funding the gangs, it's funding terrorist organizations, it's killing children, and it's destroying the future of people who get hooked on narcotics. 
These are self-inflicted wounds. <clears throat> and I'm going to ask you a question. When was the last time you saw a commercial, good, bad, or ugly, warning people to stay away from drugs? Be careful. They're addictive. They can ruin your life. I can't think of a commercial in the last year that I've seen about that. Commercials about everything else under the sun, drinking and driving or driving without a seatbelt or cigarettes. Yeah, those are out there. No drug commercials. No drug commercials. And when President Trump said, hey, let's try something different, let's put up a wall on the border, neither party wanted anything to do with it. Trump had to fight tooth and nail to get the border wall. And now Biden, of course, didn't allow the wall to be completed. Now there's rumors they may, maybe they will, maybe they won't. I've spoken about it on this program, I don't know how many times, at the hearings about how terrorist organizations, including Hezbollah, Hamas, probably ISIS, operating throughout Latin America, the tri-border region of Brazil, where Brazil abuts with Argentina and Paraguay, for example. We know that Iranian shock troops, their Quds forces, have been flowing into Venezuela for more than a decade. There was a program on this morning. Stephen Pomerantz, the former head of counterterrorism for the FBI, was on the program talking about a plot hatched by Hezbollah, controlled by Iran, to kill the Saudi ambassador in Washington, and they were going to use members of the Mexican drug cartel, Los Zetas. Think about that. So we know that Hezbollah is operating across that border. We know that there are terrorists being trained in Latin America. We know that those terrorist groups are smuggling people into the United States. So is Hezbollah, including criminals, fugitives, and sleeper agents. And yet it's a controversy over whether or not we should secure the border. Imagine if I told you there's a gang of marauders coming into your neighborhood at night when the sun goes down and they're breaking into houses and they're killing and raping and plundering people's homes. You'd lock your door. We have had hearing after hearing after hearing about the nexus between border security, national security, terrorism, public safety, and it's controversial to put up a wall on the border and enforce the immigration laws. And the American people have been buying this nonsense for how long now? For how long? George W. Bush violated the Homeland Security Act when he created the Department of Homeland Security. I came to call it the Department of Homeland Surrender. It was clear to the 9-11 Commission, which was the predication for the Homeland Security Act, that the reason terrorists, not only the 9-11 hijackers, but others have been able to come to America because of multiple failures of the immigration system. Okay, so what did Bush do? The Homeland Security Act was supposed to beef up border security and enhance the enforcement of our immigration laws from within the interior of the United States of America. So George W. Bush came along. And I, I testified before numerous hearings. I had conversations with the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Jim Sensenbrenner, and his people over this. And we thought everybody understood the issue. I gave testimony to the 9-11 Commission about this. And Bush comes along, and he spun off Citizenship and Immigration Services from enforcement, which I agreed with. I made that recommendation, in fact. But then he split enforcement in half. Customs and Border Protection, including the inspectors at the ports of entry and the Border Patrol, and ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. But that wasn't even bad enough. Then, again, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Why wasn't it just Bureau of Immigration Enforcement, which I had recommended? So they added customs, which has nothing to do with immigration. Customs used to be under Treasury, immigration under Justice, very different jobs, different perspectives, different goals, different mission descriptions. They also included TSA. They also included Secret Service. They also included ATF, all under, um, you know, in DHS. But ICE winds up in the middle of this hodgepodge. And so because ICE is part of DHS, when Secret Service needs agents, when they're short-staffed, because of an election year, for example, ICE agents are told, drop everything, you're working with Secret Service. Why? Why? We have 6,000 ICE agents, and under the best of circumstances, uh, less than half of their resources are dedicated to immigration law enforcement for the entire United States of America. The 9-11 Commission said immigration was the failure that allowed the terrorists to attack America repeatedly. And we have 
effectively 2,000 ICE agents for all of America, while the New York City Police Department has 36,000 cops. I believe there's something on the order of 45,000 employees at TSA. The 2,000 ICE agents effectively uh, enforcing immigration laws for the entire United States. Why? Well, as I pointed out in a recent piece for the American conservative, Biden amps up the immigration delivery system because that's what it's become, a delivery system that provides an unlimited supply of cheap, exploitable labor. There's no compassion here. Aren't you compassionate? No, I'm, I'm not compassionate, right? Of course I'm compassionate. I have seen people exploited in factories where women were forced to have sex with the boss if they wanted to keep their jobs, where the fire exits were blocked, where they worked under the hellish conditions of the sweatshop that you would have thought vanished decades ago. Of course, most of those sweatshops now have vanished. They've been shipped out of the country. But I can't tell you how many terrible employment situations still exist in the United States in companies that hire illegal aliens. There was a report about how the meatpacking industry suffered hundreds of COVID losses because the workers were forced to work shoulder to shoulder with no protective equipment. This just happened this past year. Well, why do you think that was? Well, I spoke to the reporter who wrote the piece, and I asked, did you inquire about the immigration status of those employees who died of COVID? And he said, gee whiz, we didn't do that. I said, well, why don't you go back and ask about that? This is a horrible, a horrific form of exploitation. But, again, if you say, let's enforce the law, let's not allow this to happen, you lack compassion. So you demonstrate compassion by having workers stand shoulder to shoulder at a meatpacking plant, which is dangerous, filthy, backbreaking work, and they're now earning less than half of what they should be earning if they weren't here illegally. You know, 30 years ago, the meatpacking industry paid $18 an hour. Now they're paying around 12 or $13 an hour. So forget about inflation, just the raw numbers. They're making less money today than 25 or 30 years ago. Why? Because they keep attracting illegal aliens who will work for substandard wages under substandard conditions. But this is, we're told, compassionate. Americans have lost those jobs because we are compassionate. Homelessness has gone up among Americans because Americans are losing their jobs, they're suffering wage suppression, but when you flood the country with, you know, huge numbers of immigrants who need a place to stay, the value of real estate goes through the roof, which thrills the banks endlessly. Thrills the banks endlessly because now people that buy houses need bigger mortgages, and bigger mortgages mean greater profits for the banks. There's a great documentary that's now making the rounds on cable about how the economy melted down back in 2008. You should watch it. It names names, Greenspan and all the other bankers and, and, and the games they played with the subprime mortgages and all the other garbage that went on with speculation. Um, and, and my gosh, the impact is still reverberating throughout the economy. And now, of course, the banks are thrilled because real estate values are jumping through the roof, and they can get bigger mortgages and make more money at the expense, literally, of Americans. <clears throat> and as property prices go up, rent goes up, and we wind up with more homelessness among Americans. Where's the compassion there? Homelessness needs to children being taken from their families, American children. No one's going to report on that, but they'll talk about the children that are being held like livestock by Biden. Of course, Biden tried everything possible to keep the Americans from seeing those horrible images. The media was thrilled to show the pictures of the cages during the Trump administration and neglected to point out that those cages were actually constructed by Obama because Obama and Biden, in my view, are not much different from the human traffickers who don't see compassion in what they do but profit, profit whether it's political power, whether it's placating the people that make the campaign contributions. This is all about money and power, and they don't really care. And what happens to the immigrants is collateral damage. Now, I don't much care for the people that go out there and say, they're all criminals, they ran the border, they're criminals. Well, we'll slow down, Charlie. Uh, these are desperate people. But among the desperate are the criminals. Among the desperate are the terrorists. And among the desperate 
are the fugitives and gangbangers, and we just don't know who's who. You can't tell a good guy from a bad guy without a scorecard. And as our friends on the left like to say, these folks are undocumented, no scorecard. So that's where the problem is. And so now Biden has basically taken down the borders, but no one's looking long-term. What is this going to mean for America? The Border Patrol used to surveil bus terminals and train stations looking for the aliens who were seeking to leave the border area to head for the rest of the country. When I was part of the anti-smuggling unit in New York City, we used to surveil the flights coming in at, mid, at, at 6 a.m. They used to call it the red eye because everybody was fast asleep on the plane and they came in with bloodshot eyes. So we would go to LaGuardia Airport or Kennedy Airport, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the morning, and we would almost always find a bunch of illegal aliens on the flight because they thought that if they went at that hour, there'd be nobody looking for them. It was a game of cat and mouse. So... You would surveil the bus terminals. You surveil trains and planes. Well, now the Border Patrol is driving illegal aliens to the bus terminal so they can head to the interior. And the numbers are so huge that some of these aliens aren't being given court dates. So here's an interesting question that only an agent probably could think of. If I was out doing an investigation, perish the thought under the Biden administration because he basically told ICE to stand down. But if you're out there and you encounter an alien and the alien says, well, I ran the border. Okay, and when was that? Fine. You're under arrest. You entered without inspection. Well, alien is driven by the border patrol to a bus terminal. Was he inspected? I don't know. I, I could see this being an interesting court case. Does that constitute an inspection? Now, what to prevent aliens who don't have documents from claiming that the Border Patrol drove them to the bus terminal because, believe it or not, you may not comprehend this, but people who are here illegally lie. They lie about how they got here, when they got here. They lie about their names. They lie about just about everything. And because they're undocumented, it's almost impossible to determine if they're lying or not or where they're lying or why they're lying. It's a mess. That's why the 9-11 Commission was really adamant about it, that national security depends on border security. So what happens now that we've got God knows how many thousands of aliens that have been driven to bus terminals by the Border Patrol, no court date, when you encounter them, are they subject to arrest? What do we tell the immigration judge? Your Honor, the guy was driven to the bus terminal by the, by the Border Patrol? What's his immigration status? God only knows. This is insanity foisted on America by an administration that does not care about national security or public safety. Remember, it's the Democrats saying, let's defund the police. And I want to share a couple of quick thoughts about that. <clears throat> there are some bad cops. Not many, a few, and it just takes a few to, you know, give everybody a black eye. <clears throat> there are bad Actors in every profession, bad doctors, bad nurses, bad lawyers, bad teachers, bad airline pilots, bad plumbers, bad electricians, bad bus drivers. I mean, what profession doesn't suffer from people that do the job poorly or criminally? I'm not making excuses. Anybody with a badge who betrays that badge should have a phone book or, or a phone booth dropped on their head, those of you old enough to remember phone booths or phone books, for that matter. But what no one wants to look at is how dangerous, number one, the job that the cops do is. Nobody wants to consider why cops wind up in confrontations in the street. And there's a lot of political factors here. I want you to think about it. How many cities and states use law enforcement as a way of generating revenue? You know, the ticket blitzes and ticket quotas, it's the end of the month. They've got to give out a certain number of speeding tickets. Look, I don't want to share the road with drunk drivers, reckless drivers, people driving without licenses. I want them off the road. They should be not only summoned, they should be arrested. You're driving drunk, someone should put handcuffs on you. You're going 80 miles an hour in a 45-mile zone, you definitely need to be in a jail cell. You go blowing through a school zone, absolutely. I remember when I was the Parents Association president of my daughter's public school, there were instances where the school crossing guard was almost run over 
by parents who picked up their kids and sped away without even looking. What are we doing? This is a school zone. These are little children there. I agree. But how often do you see the blitz where, you know, they're going to give out the extra parking tickets or they're going to give you a speeding ticket for going three miles an hour over the limit? Is this this really about public safety? Let's get back to fundamentals, why we have police in the first place. We have police, you would think, to protect the peace. That's why they're called peace officers, you know, public peace, serving the peace. And they're there, most importantly, to protect lives and property. Raising money for the administration shouldn't be one of the key jobs, but it is. And then how do we measure the effectiveness of law enforcement officers? On my job, it was always about statistics. How many arrests did you make? In fact, I addressed this issue when I went to Senator Aldemato in the early 80s to convince him to get the Reagan White House to start holding deportation hearings inside the jails, and they did. It became the Institutional Hearing Program and to change the reentry law to make unlawful reentry by criminal aliens a 20-year maximum felony, not the two-year crime that it used to be, with no distinction uh, being made back then about criminal histories. But I also said, you know, this nonsense of how many scratches, how many arrests do you have is, is ridiculous. So let's say I was in a squad where we were making arrests. We have different squads. Some squads went after the employers. Some squads went after criminal aliens. Some conducted fraud investigations. But if you were in the squad, used to be called area control, then it became employer sanctions, where your job is to arrest illegal aliens working in the United States and so forth. If some guy went out, some agent went out <clears throat> and arrested three women working in a sweatshop, and those three women had an average of four children each, my gosh, that counts as 12 arrests. It didn't matter that some of the kids might have been four years old because – you did the paperwork, and you got credit for 12 arrests. Now, my partner and I might have spent the better part of the month looking for this guy who shot a police officer, so at the end of the month, I have two arrests. Well, on paper, the guy that made 12 arrests in one day, wow. I mean, imagine by the end of the month, he could have had 50, 60, 70 arrests. <clears throat> and Mike Cutler and his partner, well, those, those guys are goofing off. They only made three arrests that month. Of course, all three were felons, and they had shot police officers or raped a woman or God knows what. And I said, we've got to get away from this notion that all arrests are equal. We should be focusing on going after the bad guys. You know, law enforcement is a triage. You can't arrest everybody. We're always told that. So let's make the arrests count. Let's really focus on the bad guys, not to the exclusion of all others, because people that run the border are violating the law and to maintain the integrity of the system and maintain deterrence against unlawful entry or aliens who violate their visas who come in through ports of entry, you arrest them if you find them. Focus on the bad guys and pick up those collateral arrests just to make it clear that if you're here illegally, if you have a bad day, you could have a very bad day. But when you have police departments purely looking at numbers and saying, Officer Smith made, you know, X number of arrests, 10 more more than his closest competitor, then you're telling the police officers of that town that success, because that's why they're evaluated, they want to be successful, the evaluation reflects whether they're being successful. Well, success means making as many arrests as possible. Well, in order to make the arrests, maybe you have cops who are escalating situations that shouldn't be escalated so they can justify the encounter turning into an arrest when it shouldn't. Now, again, I'm not squeamish about arresting people. I was involved with thousands of arrests. But if you're really concerned about the mission of law enforcement and maintaining a community relationship, then we need to rethink this notion about, number one, law enforcement being there to generate money through fines and so forth, and that you measure a cop's effectiveness by how many arrests he or she makes. Now, again, there's got to be accountability. Don't misunderstand me. I don't want to see cops spending their day at Dunkin' Donuts, and then you say, well, they were out there. It didn't matter what they did. No, it does matter. But there has to be a better way of quantifying the effectiveness of law enforcement so that it's not simply a matter of go out there and be aggressive and lock everybody up that you can lock up. Because I don't think that serves anybody's purposes. 
But you're not hearing this in the mainstream media. All you're hearing about are terrible cops who make bad decisions during crunch time. And, and by the way, if you want to talk about the fog of battle, we hear these stories all the time. Teenager shot by the cops. Yes, the teenager had a gun, but he was 14, and his favorite ice cream is strawberry vanilla, and he likes Legos and, and God knows what else. And we hear these stories all the time. If you're on patrol, if you're out there enforcing the law, and some guy with a gun, and all you see is that gun, is running, um, your life is at risk. And that 13-year-old or that 15-year-old or that 17-year-old can pull the trigger as well as somebody who's 30 years old. I've chased people down alleyways. And I'm going to be honest, if you want to talk about a conflict in your brain, chase a guy down an alleyway that you know is armed. There's a voice in your head saying, you're crazy. And there's another voice saying, run faster. You know, the devil and the angel on the two shoulders. And, of course, you run faster. But I don't mind telling you, your heart's in your throat because you know that that individual at any moment could spin around and crank off around, and that could be your last moment on this earth. It's a dangerous job. It's a dangerous business. And when I hear people, including on on the talk shows, the talking heads, I've done ride-alongs with the police. Yeah, well, that's great. Um, I've also flown on an airliner, but I wasn't in the cockpit. I I did a little single-engine flying on Pipers and and Cessnas, but that's not the same as sitting in the pilot seat of an airliner. So please don't tell me, I know what it's like to fly an airliner because I was a passenger in first class. No, you don't know what it's like to fly an airliner if you were a passenger. And if you're doing a ride-along, make no mistake, you are a passenger. Specifically, I'm thinking about Geraldo Rivera and and, and what he was discussing today. Ride-along is not the same as being a police officer or a federal agent. And again, I'm going to go back and tell you that sometimes wrong people get into law enforcement for the wrong reasons, just like medicine. By the way, I've mentioned it before, but... um, there have been studies done about medical malpractice and the cost of medical malpractice. Johns Hopkins did a study, I believe it was in 2018, that it was staggering. Because their study said, and you better sit down to this, that the prior year, over 250,000 people died because of medical malpractice. 250,000. Another study by a different organization pegged the number almost double, 440,000 in one year. No one's talking about defunding hospitals. You look at that and you say, what do we have to do to, to do a better job of not getting people killed when they go to a hospital? What mistakes are being made? Is it about infection? Is it about amputations taking place on the wrong limb? These things have all happened. What do we do? to make hospitals safer? What do we do to make airplanes safer? What do we do to make driving safer? So when there's a problem with law enforcement, let's first look at who we're hiring, how we're screening them, how much we pay them. Maybe we're not paying enough. In some communities, police officers don't make much more than people that flip hamburgers, believe it or not. What's the quality of the people you're recruiting? What's the training like? Are they getting any training in sociology and psychology at the academy. Perhaps that's something we should be doing. And while we're at it, um, maybe we should give police officers who've been burned out because they've been traumatized often enough and they have post-traumatic stress, and believe me, that's a real issue in law enforcement, maybe we should give law enforcement officers the option of early retirement. You know, thank you for your service, but you're having issues. And maybe we should let you go after eight years or ten years or five years with a greatly reduced pension, just like in the military. And, you know, we will credit you for having served your community, protected the lives and property of the residents of the town. But maybe um, you should move on to some other endeavor. Maybe maybe you should pursue your, your dreams about becoming a carpenter or a school teacher or, or a baker or, or whatever. Why not? Why not? Law enforcement is traumatic, and and I can tell you, uh, I know a number of people who, uh, you know, really suffered post-traumatic stress. It's a dangerous job. We all lose friends out there, 
And, and I still have nightmares about some of the losses that I suffered on the job of friends that I work with. So there, there's got to be a way of looking at the whole system and saying, how do we fix it? But going out there and vilifying the police and telling the community the police are their enemy, do you think that this is going to help cool things down so that we don't have the tragedies? You know, when a cop pulls a car over and the driver reacts in a certain way, the cop thinks, my gosh, this guy's about to become violent or this guy's about to run on me. Why? Because the guy has been conditioned that if you get pulled over by a cop, the cop is going to try to kill you. Things escalate very rapidly. Fear is irrational. People who are afraid may act irrationally, and that, we're not just talking about the police officer, but the civilian that the police officer is interacting with, which is why we should be looking to strengthen the ties between the police and the community, not sever those ties. There are so many creative things we could and should be doing. We ought to be rethinking um, non-lethal means of detaining people, of, of, of bringing people under control beyond tasers with all the technology that's out there maybe we could find some more means of um, incapacitating someone who's violent where we don't hurt that person and he's not able to hurt anybody else in an ideal world that would be wonderful imagine if you know you had the equivalent of a star trek phaser you know where you stun people and they're rendered unconscious and, and then you know we could sort things out afterwards without hurting them the taser is supposed to do it, doesn't always work. But the point is we ought to be looking at technology. We ought to be looking at training. We ought to be looking at recruitment. We ought to be looking at early retirement. We ought to be looking at job descriptions and evaluations, and thereby the marching orders you give to law enforcement officers when they go on duty each day. No one's talking about all these issues. All we're hearing is, you know, the cop killed somebody, he didn't have a gun. Wow. And I have to make the point that the woman that was killed at the Capitol riot was unarmed, and we don't even know the name of the police officer um, who shot her. I find that astonishing. In almost every other case, we know the person's name, address, how many kids, if they're married, how many years on the job. We have no idea who killed that Air Force veteran who was at the riot on Capitol Hill. I find that startling. And I want you to understand that carrying a firearm is a very serious responsibility. I had to qualify every 90 days with my firearm. If you didn't qualify, they took away your authority to carry. And one of the things that was always driven home during training sessions is that if you're in a shootout, and thankfully I never was, I came close a couple of times, not a pleasant feeling, thinking that you may have to pull the trigger on another human being. I love target shooting. I find it enjoyable. For me, it's a sport. It's not a sport to shoot another person. It's not a sport to shoot a dog. I had a dog attack me while we were executing search warrants years ago. And in those days, I carried a big four-inch 357 Magnum, big gun, and I could not bring myself to shoot the dog that had just bit me. I smacked him upside the head. He was a pretty big dog, and he went running away. And I was far happier that that got him to leave than my having to shoot him. You don't want to pull the trigger on a living being, whether it's a dog or a human. Believe me, you don't. Nobody does. But the point of the matter is, if you're in a shootout, they always made the point, every trigger pull is a separate investigation. If you're in a shootout and you fire 12 rounds, the first 11 might have been perfect, textbook, good job, you did the right thing, and you fire that 12th round, and you could wind up on trial for murder. Every trigger pull is separate and distinct from the one that preceded it. You better know why you're shooting, who you're shooting at, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There needs to be accountability. Absolutely, positively, there must be accountability. But on the other hand, we also need to understand that that police officer, in the heat of the moment, is reacting to a life-or-death situation where his own life is on the line. The life of his partner is on the line. The life of a third person may well be on the line. Cooler heads have to prevail, but we really need to look at this from a holistic perspective, not with the presumption that the guy with the badge is evil, but maybe the guy with the badge shouldn't have been given the badge, the guy with the badge maybe didn't get the right training, or maybe the evaluations being given to those men and women in law enforcement are, are pushing people to be more aggressive than they should be, 
so they can justify making more arrests because that's what they're being evaluated on. Lots of issues to be considered, but no one's having a rational conversation. There are communities around the country where the message is clear, the cops are the threat, the cops are the villains. The men and women who go in harm's way to protect their communities, they're the bad guys. And at the same time, what we're hearing from the radical left is, why do you get all the guns off the street? Well, if you get rid of the cops, who's going to do that? Ghostbusters? Uh, We really need to hold politicians accountable, and we need to sit down with our neighbors. This is really what I want to talk about for the couple minutes that remain. We have got to have conversations with our neighbors, especially, especially if they disagree with us. We need to have rational conversations. Keep the personalities out of it. That doesn't serve anybody's purpose. Look at the issues. Look at the 9-11 Commission report. Nancy Pelosi is big on throwing that around. We need a 9-11 Commission to figure out what happened on January 6th. Well, why don't we look at what the 9-11 Commission said in the first place about the terror attacks? That threat hasn't gone away. The threat of international terrorism is very much alive and well um, and threatens us on a daily basis. It's truly a sort of Damocles that hangs over our heads. So how does Biden's immigration policies and failures square with the findings and recommendations of the 9-11 Commission? I just want to read a couple of quick things to you. And I, and I want you, if you can, to do a couple of things. One thing, if you enjoy my podcast, I hope you do. I, I enjoy doing these. I hope it's helping you to understand things, at least through my perspective, based on all my years of experience. Take the link and email it or text it or, or put it on social media to your friends and say, listen to what Mike Cutler has to say. You may not agree with him, but at least maybe he's thought-provoking. You know, Maybe it's worthwhile thinking about what he had to say. Look at my articles at Front Page Magazine, frontpagemag.com. If you like them, send the links to as many people as you can. Ask them to do the same. I call it my bucket brigade of truth. The same thing uh, I, I've now started writing for the uh, – the American conservative. We expect, um, hopefully, tomorrow, uh, next week, rather, to have a new article out there. If you find the articles are helpful to sort through the nonsense and get past the propaganda and the bald-faced lies, please send those links to as many people as you can, especially if they disagree, and say, look, this guy Cutler um, is a centrist. He's actually a registered Democrat. I am. I don't know what happened to the Democrat Party. I wish they would come back because what's here now is not the Democrat Party. Um, but, but the reality is, look at the facts, look at the issues, look at the sections of law. Let's get past the lies and the misinformation and the rumors and the innuendos and make a distinction. It's not, there's nothing pro-immigrant about being against immigration law enforcement. That's anti-immigrant. We have generous immigration laws, and and we're very generous with the way we administer them. But we need to put American lives and Americans' jobs first. We take care of our children before we take care of anyone else's kids. If, God forbid, you heard there was a fire in the school that your kids attend, you go running into the school, who are you looking to save? Well, you want to save everybody, ideally, but I bet you you're going to be looking for your own child first. That makes sense. And then if you find other kids, of course you're going to drag them to safety also. But families look out for their own. Countries are supposed to look out for their fellow citizens. And there's nothing racist about that because Americans are as diverse as they come. You tell me what the average American looks like. But then I just want to read a couple of quick pieces. These are my notes. I just did a speaking event. Uh, I was in front of a bunch of Air Force brass through the miracle of television because of COVID. I was in Washington last week. And this comes right out of my notes. I know I've, I've said this before. But again, if you forward perhaps the link to this podcast to your friends who've never heard me or heard any of this, maybe it'll give them something to think about. That's all I want to do. We have to learn how to ask questions. Voltaire was right. to judge a person's intelligence by the questions they ask. And today we're being told, don't ask questions. Blindly follow whatever you're told. Follow the science. Who's science? God only knows. Science is the never-ending quest for knowledge, and that knowledge is acquired as we ask ever more detailed questions and figure out experiments that we need to do. The scientists do this. 
so that we can refine our understanding of all sorts of issues, whether it's medicine, whether it's physics. It's about questions and answers. Ask the questions, devise the experiments and the equipment if need be to get to those answers so you can then figure out what the next set of questions is. So let's start with this. There is a report known as 9-11 and Terrorist Travel, the staff report of the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks upon the United States. These are the lawyers and federal agents who were assigned to work with the 9-11 Commission. And they not only did that, but they came up with this report that was printed by the Government Printing Office. It's an official report that went into detail about how the terrorists were able to travel around the world, make their way to the United States, enter the United States, hide in plain sight or in the language of the 9-11 Commission, embed themselves, and then carry out terrorist attacks. That's what this was about. So let me start out with the preface to the introductory paragraph of that report. It, it, it says a lot. It is perhaps obvious to state that terrorists cannot plan and carry out attacks in the United States if they are unable to enter the country. Yet prior to September 11, while there were efforts to enhance border security, no agency of the U.S. government thought of border security as a tool in the counterterrorism arsenal. Indeed, even after 19 hijackers demonstrated the relative ease of obtaining a U.S. visa and gaining admission into the United States, border security still is not considered a cornerstone of national security policy. We believe, for reasons that we discuss in the following pages, that it must be made one. Border security. Is that what we now have on the Mexican border? By the way, what's going on on the Canadian border? What's happening at the airports? How many people are getting admitted and then disappearing? We don't even know. The media is focused solely on the Mexican border. This has been going on for the longest time. That's why I wrote an article a couple of years ago, and I called it Border Security in the Immigration Colander. You know, the colander is that kitchen tool that you use to drain pasta or, or other things. It has all those holes. And I said, look, the Mexican border is only one hole in that colander. Think of how many other holes there are. Or look at it another way. How many holes do you need in the bottom of your boat for the boat to wind up at the bottom of the lake? And, and now Joe Biden and, and his sidekick, Kamala Harris, would probably tell you that if you had a hole in the bottom of your boat, the solution is to do what? Drill more holes to let the water out, perchance? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But let me go on and read a little bit more because... In these statements, you get a clear picture that what Biden and his administration are doing are antithetical to the 9-11 Commission and to national security and to public safety. It's outrageous. This should enrage you. I sat for all those hearings. I spent time with the 9-11 Commission, and I want to know what I was wasting my time on. Blows my mind. So we, we, we get to, to this um, statement now. Once terrorists had entered the United States, their next challenge was to find a way to remain here. Their primary method was immigration fraud, lying on immigration applications. In fact, that was the topic of my very first hearing when I testified back on May the 20th, 1997, immigration fraud and visa fraud because of the 93 terror attacks at the CIA and the World Trade Center bombing. What are we doing about that? Bupkis. In fact, I wrote an article for Front Page Magazine about how, how, how Alejandro Mayorkas, forgive me, my mouth got stuck, Alejandro Mayorkas, the head of DHS, was investigated by the Office of Inspector General. He was the deputy chief of DHS under Obama because he was ordering his people to get to yes, and he had politicized the adjudication of visas that were used by terrorists, the EB-5 Treaty Investor Visas. How he was confirmed by the Senate after that is beyond me. He ordered his people to vir virtually approve every petition for every application, period. That violates this very statement. But let me continue, though. So their primary method was immigration fraud. For example, Yusuf and Ajaz concocted bogus political asylum stories when they arrived in the United States. Think about it. How many aliens right now are applying for political asylum? The more who apply the less time can be spent on investigating and adjudicating those applications. And you should know it only takes about 15 to 20 minutes to approve an application. It could take days to deny one. Biden wants a massive amnesty program. The only way that they're going to keep up with the influx is if they get out that approval stamp and work it to death without little thought to whether or not there's any fraud. Then there's no ability to interview these people, let alone do a field investigation. 
19 hijackers on 9-11 killed more people than we lost to the entire Japanese fleet at Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, and the death count from 9-11 continues. What are we doing? Why is nobody enraged? This is infuriating. Nobody in their right mind would get on an airplane if we saw a fellow passenger sneaking past TSA, yet we have a human tsunami flowing across our border, and Biden is doing nothing to stop it and everything to encourage it. So anyway, they mentioned that Yusuf and Ajaz concocted bogus political asylum stories when they arrived in the United States. Mahmoud Abu Alima, involved in both the World Trade Center and landmark plots, received temporary residence under the seasonal agriculture worker program after falsely claiming he picked beans in Florida. Now catch this. Mohammed Salome, who rented the truck used in the bombing, this is the 93 bombing at the Trade Center, overstayed his visa. He then applied for permanent residency under the agriculture worker program but was rejected. So he's an illegal alien able to rent the truck used in the bombing of the Trade Center that killed six, injured over 1,000, inflicted a half billion in damages, $500 million in damages, almost brought the tower down sideways. Their goal was to kill 250,000 people, and they almost succeeded. Think about that. Illegal alien renting a truck. Oh, and by the way, the driver, that guy was Ayad Mishmael. He drove the van containing the bomb, took English language class at Wichita State University in Kansas on a student visa, but after he dropped out, he remained in the United States out of status. Under Biden's executive orders, neither of these individuals will be subject to arrest because the only way that an ICE agent can now arrest an illegal alien is if they have a specific warrant for that individual and the person has a lengthy conviction record as an aggravated felon. So the fact that they overstayed the visa, no big deal. The fact that they're students and not going to school, no big deal. Have at it because ICE is standing down under this administration. It's an open invitation to ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Hezbollah, and other terrorist organizations. Let's continue on. Page 61 of that report, exploring the link between human smugglers and terrorists. Here we go again. In July 2001, the CIA warned of a possible link between human smugglers and terrorist groups, including Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Egyptian Islamic Jihad. Indeed, there is evidence to suggest that since 1999, human smugglers have facilitated the travel of terrorists associated with more than a dozen extremist groups. With their global reach and connections to fraudulent document vendors and corrupt government officials, human smugglers clearly have the, quote, credentials necessary to aid terrorist travel. And then we get to page 98, immigration benefits. Listen carefully. Terrorists in the 1990s as well as the September 11th hijackers needed to find a way to stay in or embed themselves in the United States if their operational plans were to come to fruition. As already discussed, this could be accomplished legally by marrying an American citizen, achieving temporary worker status, which is what DACA is, folks, or, um, or applying for asylum. There we go again, applying for asylum after entering. In many cases, the act, <clears throat> of filing for an immigration benefit sufficed to permit the alien to remain in the country until the petition was adjudicated. Terrorists, terrorists were free to conduct surveillance, coordinate operations, obtain and receive funding, go to school and learn English, make contacts in the United States, acquire necessary materials, and execute an attack. By the way, you should also know that when our forces raided the Bin Laden compound, he um, was found to be in possession of a copy of the 9-11 Commission report and an application for U.S. citizenship. They didn't say whether it was filled out, but clearly he understood that citizenship represents the keys to the kingdom for America. What are we doing? What are we doing? And then we get to um, this section from that report, and let me just read this to you. Although there's evidence that some land and sea border entries of terrorists without inspection occur, these conspirators mainly subverted the legal entry system by entering at airports. We're seeing both now, okay? People on the terror watch list have been arrested on the Mexican border, but not every terrorist is on the terror watch list, and you know who you caught. You, didn't know, you don't know who you didn't catch, okay? So they're coming in through all of those holes in that immigration calendar, right? So they said... 
they're coming in millions of airports and so doing they're relying on a wide variety of fraudulent documents on aliases and on government corruption yeah well i got to look at our own government today folks sadly because terrorist operations and that suicide missions in the early to mid 1990s once in the united states terrorists and their supporters tried to get legal immigration status back to immigration fraud right that would permit them to remain here primarily by committing serial or repeated immigration fraud, there we go, by claiming political asylum, there we go, and by marrying Americans. Many of these tactics have remained largely unchanged and undetected throughout the 1990s and up to the 9-11 attack. And now listen to this paragraph. Thus, abuse of the immigration system and a lack of interior immigration enforcement were unwittingly working together to support terrorist activity. It would remain largely unknown since no agency of the U.S. government analyzed terrorist travel patterns until after 9-11. This lack of attention meant that critical opportunities to disrupt terrorist travel and therefore deadly terrorist operations were missed. Well, here we are, 20 years later, we know all about it, and what is Biden doing? Having ICE stand down and flooding the country with people whose identities are unknown and unknowable and no way of tracking them once they get past the border. And sanctuary cities are obstructing immigration law enforcement and providing, on the state level, driver's licenses to illegal aliens. I don't know of a single terror attack since 9-11 that was successfully carried out involving airplanes, but every terror attack, with few exceptions, involved motor vehicles. I want you to think about all of those big barriers that are put up in major cities, the grates that pop out of the sidewalks to block vehicles, um, the big flower pots that really aren't flower pots. They're there to keep cars and trucks away from buildings that they're protecting. They're protect against what? Truck bombs and car bombs. But we're giving driver's licenses to people whose identities are unknown and unknowable. And by the way, if you're listening to my program and you don't live in a sanctuary state, congratulations, but you're still at risk. Because anybody with a license from New York State or California or Illinois or New Jersey or any of the other sanctuary states can come to your state and rent a motor vehicle and carry out an attack. This undermines national security for the entire United States of America. And where are the Republicans as well as the Democrats? Nobody, but nobody wants to talk about the nexus between immigration and terrorism, and I'll tell you why. Because they still want to pass comprehensive immigration reform and for the kicker here, and I've mentioned it before, I'm going to mention it again, Biden says 11 million, Yale says there's over double that number, but the number that nobody is willing to discuss, even programs where I've called the producers, I've known them for years, that's exciting, that's interesting, they won't put it on the air, but if let's say we legalize 25 million, again, no interviews, no field investigations, a nightmare, that's the tip of the iceberg because they will immediately have an absolute right to bring in every single one of their minor children and to bring in their spouses. And with Mayorkas at the helm, no DNA testing is likely to be carried out. And what does that mean? Well, the average illegal alien could bring in as many as he or she wants and simply get paid for it. So let's be optimistic and say on average they only bring in four children each. How much is four times 25 million? We could be looking at the admission of 100 million immigrants literally overnight. They would have to go to school. They need food, water, shelter, housing, clothing, medical care, transportation, education, and they will soon grow up and join an overflowing labor pool. I want someone to explain how that is in America's best interest. That's the question that every politician should be asked by every so-called journalist. I hope this has been thought-provoking. Please share this information with as many friends as you can. Have them do the same. And please always remember, folks, that democracy is not a spectator sport. I'm counting on you to join my bucket brigade of truth and share this information with everyone you possibly can and ask them to do the same. The First Amendment is still alive and well, despite what social media might want you to believe. Have a great weekend. I look forward again to seeing you next week right here on the Michael Cutler Hour. Have a great weekend, everybody. See you next week.